0: Hello, and welcome back to episode 176 of Fully Equipped Podcast. I am one half of the hosting crew today. I'd like to welcome
1: the other half today. Gene, how's it going? I'm actually one third, if you want to be honest, RB. I'm not even quite up to a half, but I'm going to do my best today. I'm going to right. try to stay on point and stay focused.
0: All right. So good luck
1: for those. Yeah. Oh, I'm going
0: to try. It's like herding cats at this point, right, Gene? Um, but yeah, so I'm I'm at Riviera this week. Uh, Jonathan is off and Chris is very busy in fittings uh, today. So, you know, if, you, if there is a little bit of background noise, it's because I'm in the lobby of the Riviera Country Club Clubhouse, which is very swanky and very nice. Uh, and the reason I'm not in the media center is because they are currently interviewing Tony Finau. So I'm going to talk to you, Gene. Sorry, you're no, you're no Tony Finau, but you're the guy with the robot.
1: Uh, I'm no Tony Finau, but that was a nice humble brag intro there with your, uh, I'm in Riviera in the uh, clubhouse, <laughs> well played. Hey, what's on your lid? I know people can't, is, is that Sasquatch? Yeah, it's I, it's funny.
0: I had a couple people ask about this. It was a hat I got at the PGA show. So it, it is Sasquatch carrying golf clubs. It was um, true. Linkswear, they um, they had a booth set up and they're like, hey, pick a, pick a patch and we'll put it on a hat for you. And I was like as a corrupt media member at this point <laughs> I was so like, can, you, can you get another one of those I can try
1: uh, the reason <laughs> I, I don't ask know. is no no the reason I ask is no joke uh, I was just shooting some content with Gary McCord Gary McCord is obsessed with Sasquatch and he belongs he to a, he belongs to a Sasquatch search party committee in Bale, and they do events and I'm not joking like Sasquatch and fondue and so if you can give me that lid i will have massive cred with mccord because i can give him that because he will wear that so proudly the sponsors will go nuts on that so we have to make that happen and oh, um, i remember reading an article about that yeah he's a big like sasquatch hunter which is pretty funny
0: and ufos too uh, and that's true that's true i mean she probably, probably had quite a week
1: with all the balloons they shot down over the last month but uh Yep. I, didn't even, I didn't even get into it. The last time I saw him, we were talking about 432 harmonic hertz or hertz frequency, which is the frequency of the earth. And he was asking me if we could balance a golf shaft to 432 hertz to get it in frequency with the earth and see if we could strike a golf ball better. And I was like, Gary, this is making my head hurt. I don't want to talk anymore. So, but that lid is awesome. And we have to make that happen. So, All right. Um, you know, speaking of Sasquatch, it wasn't quite the same, but uh, I was—I
0: was there. You go. I was up extremely early this morning uh, on—I uh, guess today's Wednesday, so Monday or Tuesday. Sorry, I was up at three thirty just because my—I'm on the East Coast body clock, and this morning again, I was up at four, so it gave me no better excuse than to get to the golf course this morning to watch Tiger Woods tee off and warm up for his pro am, uh, which is pretty fascinating because I've never—I've never watched him play in a PJ tour event. And I'm very I, I make sure I'm very specific when I say PJ tour event because I, I see him play a couple holes of the masters during a practice round and I once saw him hit one shot off the first tee at the president's Cup in Montreal. I don't know what that was fifteen years ago. But other than that, this is my first time seeing him and just seeing him at Rib is pretty cool. So to be out this morning, he's got no changes in the bag except he's got a new three iron. So he's he's working with like a, a finely tuned seven seventy. Uh, to just kind of flight the ball. And let me tell you, it was just over 35 degrees this morning. It was all windy as all heck. And long irons are going to be very important this week. It was, ins- it was so cold. I could not believe a cold- it was actually hotter.
1: in Well, I say hotter, but warmer in Toronto than it was here this morning, which is insane. So, RB, you're spoken like a true panty waist California. <laughs> That's what we complain about all the time. And all you people from Bridget, you know, areas look at us and go, oh, you guys are just so worthless. It does get cold here. I keep telling people that. Nobody believes me. I
0: was wandering the range um, yesterday. And it was around forty-five, fifty, and I was the only guy in a t-shirt. So it was like, spot the Canadian yesterday. But uh, <laughs> people were like in the, in the muffs and the toques and everything. And I'm just like walking around in a t-shirt going, yeah, it's fine. But, you know, this morning... What ball is is Tiger playing right now? I believe he's still using the X from the PNC. He talked about getting a little bit more distance. And around here, when it's cold, especially, I mean, he's got a a late early tee time for Thursday and Friday, which I think is pretty fascinating because normally you'd think he'd do early late to give him more time in between. And let's be honest, Tiger Woods, I'm pretty sure he got to pick exactly what tee time he wanted. So, um, to see that is going to be pretty interesting to follow because it's going to be a shorter time between his, his uh, between his uh, his two rounds. And this morning he, he played the front nine and kind of like you know chipped and putted on the back. I mean he knows his way around this golf course, so it was just a matter of hanging out with his pro am partners. But uh, his short game was a little rusty, which I wrote about for golf.com. But overall, his ball striking was good. His dry, I mean, it's, and no one's hitting it anywhere this morning. It was so cold, um, but even with the wind. It's You know, we talk about the, the effects that, that um, the wind has on a golf ball, but when you're in a canyon like, like Riviera is, it's insane how much it really does twirl and whip around.
1: Well, I'll tell you this. It was really interesting. Um, after, you know, I got out of my murder suite last week, I, you know, went to the tournament at Pebble, and um, I was there on Thursday, and up until about 2.33 o'clock, It was dead calm. Everybody was eating the golf course alive. And then at about 2.33, it was like someone flipped a switch, and a 30-mile-an-hour wind started coming off of the bay. And I watched tour players, and I sat behind 17, and it was really fascinating. And you could see guys that had never dealt with the wind before, and they were trying to hit knockdown shots. They couldn't hit them straight. And the guys that would hit, like, kind of, um, you know, really low high spinning shots if they got a little bit of side spin on them i was watching balls go into the grandstands and it's simply a function of if you can keep your spin side spin less than two or three hundred rpm which is not a lot compared to like four or five thousand that these guys were probably spinning with their you know five irons in in that in that scenario um you can hit it straight, but as soon as that spin axis starts to tilt a little bit more towards that side spin, ball goes off the planet. And it was wild watching some of the best players in the world not be able to control that. And I think it's simply a function of what your experience is with the wind. And so if the conditions are that way, it rib, it'll be real interesting to see you know who perseveres and most likely it'll be uh, European players and, you know, players that are used to being, you know, playing in inclement weather.
0: And the, like it is it's interesting. Cause like watching the, uh, watching the first tee this morning, I was up there for a little bit kind of this, well, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it was so early, but like still this morning and for the, everyone I think is very familiar with the first tee shot at Riviera, way down into the can. So you started with the clubhouse and hit all the way down. Well, I didn't realize cause I was never, this person would have been here again. So, the second hole runs basically parallel, and back up towards the clubhouse, and then it kind of shoots down the rest of the canyon, in the valley, and the pros didn't really have a problem where to aim. They picked the spot and they kind of threw it down the left side, and it drifted back with the wind. But the right-handed amateurs that played a slice, they were people who were like almost at the range, like right across <laughs> number two, because it's a, it's a I don't know it's probably an 80, 90 foot drop all the way down to the to the fairway. So it's fascinating to see like. You know how good someone, how good players can control their ball flight, and that's gonna. I think that is gonna be a big factor here because I don't see the wind changing too much this week. So, and and it's. I mean, as far as clubs are concerned, I expected to to see more changes across the board from wedges. People talk about wedges. People talk about changing for the grasses, but I think at this point, I spoke to Aaron Dill a little bit. He's like, "Some players change, but right now, a lot of guys." They've been playing for a few weeks now and they're just changing for grooves. They're not changing for any type of grind. They're kind of settled into what they like. And when you think about the the course conditions, like if you're around the greens, a tight like the, a tight lie in, in Scottsdale is very similar to the tight lie you'd see here. So um, that to me was, I guess when you when you put it that way, is like less shocking that they would switch, but there were more two irons this week and some longer cowdy back irons to hit some of these tighter shots around here because Again, of course, it's amazing, but like the fairways are tiny. Like they, TV, I said the times, TV does not do justice how skinny some of these fairways are.
1: Let me, let me ask you this. What, uh, what's the rough like there? It's not too bad. Yeah. So, I, I so, would. so, last year, real quick, the reason I ask is so this year I went to, uh, Pebble and the waste management, uh, you know, been to Palm Springs, no Palm Springs, uh, Cory you can make the argument is the only course that has some fairly decent rough but you have to go a little a ways out of the second cut but it's really interesting in to speak to your point about wedges all the all the golf courses kind of set up the same way on the west coast swing and Hawaii they make them wide open as far as you you don't have to hack out of a lot of really bad stuff to get the ball moving forward so that probably leads itself or lends itself to you know what you were saying that these players would uh stick with what they've got as opposed to experimenting the other interesting thing though for those who don't live on the west coast it hasn't stopped raining here in two months and it rained yesterday and it's just the ground is soaked right now so those tight lies you're going to get uh, a, a lot of shots that are going to be, you know, mud balls. And I don't know if uh, if they have any special rules in place, but that adds an, another interesting dynamic. The ground is just saturated right now.
0: I'll, I'll be honest around, around here. It's pretty, it's firm, but it's soft. So like, but mm-hmm. there's no mud balls. I didn't see any mud balls out there. The fairways mm-hmm. are pristine. I, I know they played it down or they lifted it up a few times and I know Pebble they did for the for the first three rounds or maybe all of them. Yep. But I don't see that this week and credit to the grounds, crew, credit to the wind for drying this place out. But I'll say like, I know it's been an issue. It, it was an issue at Pebble. They better keep those green speeds a little lower because even seeing some of the pro-am today and seeing some of the players go around, I could not believe how much there was of like, not oscillating, but like I mean, because the pins were in like pro am position, so they're kind of like at the fronts of greens and in the middle. But if they're on a high point or they kind of like pick one of those spots at the edges where it's near a roll off or something like that, it could get dicey. And that again was pretty fascinating to see because even Phoenix, even Phoenix last week, like Phoenix was fast. Like you saw John Ron one of the best bunker players in the world. That man hit a bunker shot from anywhere. It's insane. He's hitting some of these downhill shots onto these firm greens and it's just rolling out just rolling out and i think when you see the scores that they shot last week i everyone says it but like you don't realize the separation between that top 10 and players that just made the cut and then players that didn't make the cut these are some of the best players in the world and that score separation is actually extremely high and i think someone is this week is going to separate themselves i bet you there's going to be two or three people that are going to be, be running away from kind of the rest of the middle of the pack When you think about the conditions and the way the course is set up, because it's it's uh, it's going to be very interesting. I'm excited. I'm very excited for this tournament this week.
1: And you know, the other thing is, it's interesting if the wind keeps blowing. You know, the wind dries greens out as the day goes on, and that can cause issues. and And the wind was definitely blowing last week in Phoenix. Um, I was out there Monday and Tuesday. And Wednesday, and I was shocked at how much wind. It's just we're we're in this period in, in this, that we have really unstable air, and when we have that, you know, people think of you know West Coast is always sunny with a light ten to fifteen mile an hour breeze, but you know, yesterday we were getting gusts up to 30 40 miles an hour. So, and if you get that in that canyon, you, you're gonna you're gonna have some. You know, you're, it, to your point, it will separate. You know, those who like it when the wind blows versus those who don't.
0: And there was like the, you know, you see the flags that kind of litter the range. They were straight. They were not, they were fluttering, but they were straight out 90 degrees. So yeah, it was, it was definitely blowing. But as far as, as far as equipment is concerned, you know, I, I did mention wedges. Uh, Ricky Fowler's got a new Titleist Prairiewood in the bag. I got, I got a picture of that. So I'll be, I'll be talking about that later on. Uh, this week, there was nothing new too much with irons. There was definitely something like, Again, players just looking more for drivers. Adam Scott had a Ping G430 LST in the bag, which again, as, as I may, he's been playing the stealth. Even Justin Rose, who who won with a Callaway Fairwood, is back to his two M6 Fairwoods. And I think if you look at the sole design of that that older Made, and the newer ones have it too, but it's actually a little bit curved, a little bit more curved. If he gets a shot out of the rough, it's a little easier to dig it out with one of those than it is with Callaway just because it's a little flatter. I mean, there is yep. the there is the John Rom head that a lot of people are aware of, which is a little bit more curved in those shots. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's it's going to be inter- like, again. I, I, I always say I always seem like it's like there's not that much, but then you start digging into it and you realize like there's a lot of players messing around with like little things and little tweaks because they're getting ready for. And to your to your point, like West Coast generally isn't too too windy. I know we've had some conditions over the last couple weeks, but when they go to Florida, it's going to start blowing. Yep. So I'll tell you right now the score at Arnold Palmer in a couple weeks or next week, whatever it is, or two weeks from now, it's going to be hot. They always get, they grow a lot of rough and it's windy and it's firm. So like, I think players are starting to, not that they don't take this tournament seriously, because it's obviously a very serious tournament and it's a designated event is worth 20 million bucks. So it's even those players, like I think they're going to, we're going to see a little bit more of that, but uh, you know, there's nothing new coming out, right? So at this point, they're, they're just tweaking, they're just tweaking, they're just tweaking. And uh, again, for the wind, I think that's going to be the biggest play this week.
1: Yeah, I agree. You know, my thing that I'm curious about, you know, last year is with the Honda um, and, and with the Palmer, you remember how much complaining and bitching went on? And oh, yeah to see how deep those fields are uh you know or if people decide to conspicu- conspicuously take those tournaments off because they just don't want to get their brains beaten out and um you know so you know once again we've got this new revamped pga that is dropping two 20 million dollar purses back to back in uh you know to try to keep the major marquee event pumped up and you got a lot of guys playing back to back that you normally don't see uh, in the field, but it's interesting. After this week, the, the grind starts. You know what? What you see coming up to you know TPC. Well, the other thing is too is the like. I think next week the
0: Honda. No offense to the Honda, but it's it's going to be a pretty weak field. I think that's the one that a lot of people are going to take off. It's not a, it's not a designated event, and even some of the vans. A uh, couple of, like the Wilson van took off early to uh, yesterday because they have to get a, they have to go across country. And I think you know that's one of those things. I remember being a kid thinking, "Man, I want to work on a tour van." And you realize pretty quick it, it is a grind. It is a grind each week. You are at the the beck and call of players if they need you, depending on the you know the van and, and some of the players that you have. But you know, driving from here to you were to just you were just Beach, you were just
1: meant to do this, weren't you? You were just totally yeah. meant to do this. You wanted to work on a tour van kid. I wanted to be a fighter pilot, and
0: like... I, here's a, here's a funny little anecdote. You mentioned fighter pilots. so my brother, who is who's in the the military, um, he went through a bunch of like they do a bunch of like pre exam stuff, right? And he's a smart kid, so uh, they're like, "Do you want to be like in the like you could fly." Fighter planes, right? Like, do you want to fly fighter planes? He's like, no, I don't want to. And you know, and they, uh, and he's like, you know, he's a bit of a humorous guy too. But he's like, they're like, what? Like, why not? Like, well, you, you're smart. You're a smart guy. Like, we, will train you to fly planes. And he's like, I, and he's, but he's a little aloof sometimes as well. And he's like, no, I'd lose the keys. <laughs> he just had no interest in flying planes. But he said he'd lose the keys to a fighter jet. So, um, true, yeah, it's a true story. But, um anyways, buddy. yeah, I tur- like watching gear this weekend. Ricky's got a new fairy wood a lot of fresh wedges in the bag. I think Ping said they built out about 65 clubs this week. Um, and I saw it was the first time I actually saw, a, I won't say who it was, but a couple of players tested out some clubs and they just brought them back to the van and they probably hit like four or five times. So they took the clubs apart, threw it in a, threw a shaft in one drawer in case they needed it again and th- wrapped the head and bubble wrap and put it back in the drawer. That's kind of fascinating because people think this stuff just goes out, but a lot of players, they, they hit it and they don't like it. You know, someone else might find it useful down the line. So, got those specs checked out and uh it'll be it'll it's gonna be it, i think it's gonna be a good week but you know speaking of gear you know this is what we cover here fully equipped costco's been we talked about costco a lot like i feel like costco's practically a golf store at this point and um you know, we had the irons we got we know where they came from we talked about that already i'm just expecting at this point any week now they're going to be in, in stores but another iron set that was in stores, or at least online, it was, I don't believe it was actually in stores, so I'll take that back, but it was online. Were two sets of Hanma irons of all things. And I wrote it, I came across it because, like any other person, I was browsing Costco. I went to the, it was Costco.com, not deep.ca. I know there's a, a designation there, but mostly speaking to an American audience at this point. And on Costco.com, they had Hanma irons for sale, which were about 35% off normal retail. Wrote about it, reached out to Hanma, and they told us. And this happened with Betnardi as well. I you know Jonathan talked. We talked about this a couple of weeks, uh, a couple of months ago now. Although Betnardi putters, I believe there were still some on the website. Which again, I'm not going to argue why they were there. It showed up. That's just what was all going on. But apparently, something happened again where a distributor or an account had sets that they didn't want, and they reached out to Costco. And I, I don't know if they ordered extra sets from Hanma or how that works. You know, I mean. Sure, a light bulb went off somewhere, but Costco got a hold of a bunch of these Hanma sets. One set was steel, one set was graphite, one was the cavity back, one was the larger cavity back, and they're selling five to pitching wedge sets for 30% off retail, which is like shocking.
1: Well, it's what I think the the greater story, and it may or may not be indicative, you know, Hanma... Uh, three years ago four years ago you know was ready to make this huge american push this you know um they you know they signed justin rose they they got all of this energy behind them and then it kind of fizzled they retracted and you know whenever you see high 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 good showing up no at costume you have to ask yourself was this a mistake or is this part of the retrenchment process that they're trying to clear inventory and going back to a, mostly an Asia focused, uh, you know, uh, strategy for, for marketing because, you know, most, uh, I think the only brands that are, you know, other than some of the, you know, smaller niche brands like Mira, uh, XCO, for example, Honma really had a difficult time getting into the US marketplace because there just wasn't a lot of brand recognition. People in the industry knew about them and people that know about the Asian golf market knew about them, but I don't think the average consumer understood. And add that plus an astronomical price point. And it's kind of like, what, what is this? Why, why are we purchasing this? You make a good point because I think there's one of the
0: peculiar things about golf equipment is people are very specific to golf like they want golf stuff they don't want other sports stuff when it comes to their golf equipment and you see i mean wilson's made a pretty big push and they're the official football of the nfl and they're all kinds of things with other sports but people look at wilson as like a general sporting goods company which is almost a detriment to the success that they've had in other sports but people look at golf and it's like It doesn't quite get up to that level. Although again, I've tested their new driver. And as I, as I said to their, when I talked to their team and I talked to some other people, I'm like launch monitor doesn't care how much a golf club costs. They don't care. They care how it makes and how it performs and what the launch and spin and forgiveness and all those like technical numbers and facts are. And for Hanma, it's just a recognition game. There's, there was, there was a, there's a struggle with the recognition and To your point, if there was another brand that I would say other than Zexio, it was Strixon had this really slow burn. You had this weird company with this, I say weird, but like you had this company with an unusual name that people didn't know how to pronounce. People still struggle with Zexio. Like a lot of golfers, they're like, what's the XXIO brand, right? But Strixon had this slow, slow, slow market, like into the market. And they had golf balls and they focused with Cleveland. It was all under the same umbrella. And all of a sudden, you know, Cleveland stopped making forged irons and strict on iron started getting into the bag. I'd say as far as the way that they decided to get into the market was probably the most impressive that I've seen from a company because they've had this slow burn and they've really ingrained themselves into the culture of custom fitting and they've created a lot of options. But to see the brand, again, I was shocked. I was really surprised, which is why I wrote about it, because we've seen Whoa. other for different like, cuts costco go into other things but like to get that iron there you're like what the heck
1: so i'll tell you something funny you know what the name strixon means it's it's uh sumimoto rubber or something isn't it sumitomo rubber industries yeah (laughs) (laughs) that is the that is the sri and strixon and so i was uh a a client of mine friend of mine uh tetsu yamaguchi yamaguchi uh he was the head of r&d at uh at uh, Sumitomo Rubber at the time so Sumitomo Rubber is the parent company in Japan it's Dunlop and Exio and and then they purchased Cleveland and then they came up with this Srixon golf ball and he came to me at the PGA show and this is I don't know how many years ago and he said Parente-san What do you think of this name? And I said, I think it is a horrible name. And he said, what do you think of the ad campaign? And the ad campaign, uh, you might be too young to remember this. The ad campaign was Fuzzy Zeller with the Shrixon golf ball in his mouth. Because he had shot himself in the foot making semi-racist comments about Tiger after he won the Masters and what he was going to do for dinner. So the first campaign was fuzzy with a golf ball in his mouth that said on. And I turned to him and I said, this might be the worst ad campaign I've ever seen in the dumbest name. So to your point, I gave him no chance. I was like, this is just, this is culture clash of an extreme level like you're not getting what you know this nobody can identify this name but what they did and this is what's so wild about the japanese th- they play the long game they to your point they they didn't play the two-year game they didn't play the five-year game they played the 10 and 15 year game and they kept grinding and kept grinding and there were periods where I remember talking to people and they're like, I don't want to touch those Strixon irons or those Strixon drivers. You know, it, they honestly compared them to like department store brand because they had no idea. It, it was such a disconnect, the US Strixon brand versus Dunlop in Japan, which was the number one brand in Japan. But people yeah. couldn't connect those two. But by playing the long game, They eventually started capturing the market, and they've been very successful. And now it proves to me a name doesn't matter. Now you say, I've heard of that. Nobody even knows. I mean, it's a a ridiculous name that was built around an acronym that doesn't make any sense, but – it works and they sell and they're effective. And now they've got, uh, you know, three mature brands within Cleveland, Strixon, and also Exxon. So they've, you know, credit to them. They've done a great job in establishing, uh, their American presence, uh, in the, uh, in the marketplace. Yeah. And I think, as you said, it, it goes to show that performance will
0: stand out. Right. And, you know, Speaking of testing, when you talked about Tucson, Becky was out there this week again. He was hitting all, he had all kinds of shafts in his driver, and I, I got a chance to talk to someone uh, from Japan who works with the graphite design team, and he's got all these different driver shafts. And the goal was to test feel, so he had different tipping, different length, a couple slightly different lengths, but all tipping, and he was just hitting all these different shots. And, you know, I get questions all the time about tipping on Instagram, and I'm like, it it has a feel effect but it doesn't have a huge effect on launch and spin and he's hitting shots and clunking balls on tees and getting the foresight out and hitting more shots again and hitting it. and I'm like, man, this guy like his feel is just unbelievable because you could hear him talking. Like yeah, he is speaking Japanese so I do not understand. I will be very up on about him with that. But you know that they're tweaking, you know that they're doing these little things and I just find that that intuition that players have at the highest level so impressive. Uh it's it is fascinating. And you know, long, you know, to tie it back, we're at the Genesis genesis used to be a sub-brand of hyundai yep. you talk about it, it was like it was like one model and now it's like a whole whole different brand so again, i think it is it's always fascinating how that works when we talk about it's a luxury like brand,
1: brand. If, you, if you don't think exactly. hyundai, you don't think luxury you think genesis you think luxury so no yeah. you're 100 percent right
0: it, it is fascinating but uh so you know we don't want to go too long here because uh i have an interview with uh lou stagner uh who is the lead data insights for Arcos golf, great stats guy. And speaking of stats, you know, we are, they did a great segment on golf channel about how strokes gained and how stats play yeah. such a huge important role with players nowadays and how the, the mindset has changed on 10 a credit to Brandel Chamblee I believe it's Mark Brody, who they talked to the inventor of strokes gained of why players go for 10, the reason why, and the reason the stats show that if you put it closer to the green, you're most likely going to produce the different score and we talked about a lot of those things with Lou. I got to pick his brain on a number of, of things about, you know, something we talk about all the time, but just pull that driver. Don't necessarily, you're not necessarily gaining an advantage by trying to hit your three-wood in the fairway. And a lot of other factors when it comes to club fitting. And I think people are really going to enjoy it. So, Gene,
1: we'll keep it short this week. And uh, But I always appreciate the talk. It's always fun. Hey, as always, and we didn't go too sideways. You kept me in line. Thank you. Jay. wall well, we will got- be happy. And, and glad the place wasn't burned down when he comes back next week from vacation. That's right. But you know, we got we 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 touched on a little bit of task We touched on a little bit of earth breaking yes. season. We and we gotta we gotta go a little sideways. I mean, you know, come on.
0: And so so with that, we're gonna we're gonna throw it to our interview with Lou Stagner. Hope you enjoy. All right, so I'd like to welcome for the first time ever on the fully equipped podcast, Lou Stagner, the data insights lead for Arcos Golf. Lou, welcome to the
2: show. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's good to be here and chat with you.
0: I'm a I'm a longtime uh, Twitter follower and uh, very much appreciate all the uh, all the insights that you pull from the Arco's database, which I think, you know, at this point has a lot of shots on it, doesn't it?
2: An incredible number of shots, um, over six hundred million now shots. And to put that in perspective, um, ShotLink, which is what the PJ Tour uses, and has been around since two thousand four capturing um you know nearly every shot hit on the pga tour there's only 25 26 million shots in there roughly somewhere around there um and arcos is over 600 million so there's really not a situation that you uh you know you can't dive pretty deep on uh with the arcos data it's 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 awesome to have access to it i'm definitely a, a kid in a candy store with, with uh, when i get to work with the database.
0: And, that, and that's one of the things I, I when i talk to when even when i talk to club fitters about uh, like launch monitors and the ability that, that what they do is they only gave us data to interpret right it's it's our goal to to look at it and really understand what it means and how we can put it into a functional purpose whether it be pointing someone in the right direction right because it, it really comes down to mining that data for what it's actually worth and just saying you know i have so many shots right
2: yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, they're, they're, the most important thing is to take all this data and turn it into information, information that's usable for whether it be a golfer, whether it be a fitter, whether it be a golf coach, taking that and creating information that a golfer can act upon and use intelligently to help make them a better player, which is you know, ultimately what we're, what we're all trying to do is, is get better.
0: And and there's a lot more integration as well with the system and coaching now, which I think is something that's really cool because, you know, I said, my, my background's in club fitting. So when a golfer would come to me and they would say something like, you know, I struggle with this distance or I struggle with this golf club or I think I miss this way around the golf course, you know, you're only getting the information that the way the golfer interprets their time spent on the golf course, whereas in reality, a lot of those interpretations might not be as as correct as they might assume which you know in that interaction with the with the club fitter might take longer to solve a problem whereas when there's access to their own data within their game when they use the system it's a lot easier for that golfer to look at it and say or, say, or the fitter to look at their data and say okay this is this is where you think you have a problem but this is where the data is actually showing us that we have a a distance gap or something like that and that can lead to finding results a lot quicker, right?
2: Uh, definitely. I, I think we're all guilty of uh, of bias in our own game. Um, and what I mean by that is how we interpret our own game and what we think we're good at and what we think we're poor at. And we typically, as humans, don't do a very good job at, at being accurate at that. Um, and having the actual numbers helps to remove any of that confirmation bias that we might have in play, any of the subjectivity that we have around our games. Uh, and it hap- and It happens at all levels. There's a story. I, I, I've told this a few times and I forget who told me. Uh, I don't want to say the wrong person, but when Justin Rose started working with um, Sean Foley, um, he apparently showed up um, and said, my wedge game's horrible. Like we got to work on my wedge game and Foley went and dug deep into the strokes gain numbers uh, at wedge distances and said, like, what are you talking about? You're literally like one of the best two or three wedge players on the PGA tour. Like we don't, that's not a weakness. We don't need to, to work on that. And I have no idea what happened. It'd be, I'd love to be able to talk to, to Rose one day and ask him that. But, but my guess is he probably hit a couple of squirrely shots and, and then, you know, Anytime he hit hit something that wasn't perfect, he just kind of um, re-instilled his incorrect belief that he was a poor wedge player. Uh, And when you have those numbers, it removes any of those feelings that might be part of it that we get, uh, you know, we can be influenced pretty heavily. If you talk to a lot of golfers, they typically will end up being uh, much better at remembering their very bad shots um at the end of a round and they're very good shots um and in that influence warps our perception of you know what's real with our data if that makes sense
0: no it makes it makes total sense and it's kind of like one of those funny things and i i look at my app sometimes and it'll you know it'll show like over all of the data that I have, like, what is the longest drive that I've hit? And what is the shortest drive that hit? And yes, like the longest drive that hit was like, I don't know, 360 something yards, but it also was like extremely dry and downhill and downwind and under these like extreme conditions. But also one of my shortest was probably about 225 yards, which is probably some wicked slice that hit a tree and like launched back as well. So I always find it very funny when, and uh, to, you know, to look at that and say, okay, well, obviously the average is somewhere in between there. Yeah. but it's not like I'm hitting it 360 yards every time. Although I'd like to say, yeah, I, you know, one time I did that. Right. But it comes down to, and, and you mentioned it with the, the, the uh, little story there with Justin is the idea of proximity. And one of the things that I love that you show and you showcase on Twitter all the time is like, you know, this is the, uh, this is the tour player average from say a hundred yards or 125 yards or 150 yards, because a lot of times what people are seeing on television are, The best players coming down the stretch on Sunday, obviously playing some of their best golf to get into that position. So when they're hitting these wedges and hitting these short irons to 20, 15, 10 feet, even closer than that, and then someone goes out and they're, you know, a five handicap and they hit one to 25 feet and they hit it, you know, on the green and they're giving themselves a putt. It's a green and regulation like, oh, I, I should be within four feet. And it's like, that's really not the goal, is it?
2: No, no, not at all. And uh, you're right. We we are on TV mo- for the most part. Most people are tend to watch golf on the weekends. Um, you know, there's more golf watched on the weekends than on Thursday and Friday, typically. And they're they're typically showing players at the top of the leaderboard on the weekend. And players at th- at the top of the leaderboard are playing their best golf. They're they're at the top because they're playing extremely well. And so we have this warped sense of of what the typical tour player is doing out there. We're just watching players that are typically on a heater of some sort. Um, and that starts to warp our sense of, of what is typical at that level. And what you see from the leaders on Saturday and Sunday is, is definitely not typical. They're hitting it really well. They're making a lot of putts. Uh, it's like all of us. When we go out and we have good rounds and we play really good, you know, the top 10% of our rounds, we play really well all day. That's not typical for us. So you're seeing, you know, the top percentile of rounds for players that are in the lead and you know having those expectations um and trying to translate that down to the amateur game is a is a losing battle um these are amongst the best few hundred players on the planet Um, there's 65 ish million golfers in the world and these are the best few hundred they're extremely good and so amateurs, and, and I still don't understand why golfers do this, um, why we're comparing ourselves to the best. I wouldn't go to the three point line and start shooting threes and, and compare myself to Steph. Like I'd never do that. Right. Cause he's just, <laughs> he's incredible. Like, and, and I wouldn't go throw a football and compare myself to Josh Allen or Patrick Mahomes. I, I wouldn't do that because they are the best in the world at what they do. But for some reason, golfers, we want to compare ourselves to the best. And it's a really slippery slope. And, and so you, you know, if you follow me on Twitter, I'm always constantly preaching, manage your expectations. Uh, and that's because having realistic expectations for your skill level will help you play better, in my opinion.
0: So before I get to the next question, I want you to plug your Twitter handle. I know I normally I say tell people to do this at the end, but I want to make sure, I want to make sure people find you right away.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's at Lou Stagner, L O U S T A G N E R, at Lou Stagner on Twitter. Perfect. Yeah, and the
0: that that brings me to kind of like one of my one of my first like major questions here when it comes to uh, data. And one of the things that I like about using the Arco system because a lot of people ask me all the time, like you work in golf, what like what's your handicap, or are you test golf, what's your handicap? And I don't, I haven't carried one for a long time, but what I do use is the app, and I I have it set for my my strokes gained level for like a scratch player. And usually it's around, and then I end up at like, a say a four or five, depending on my round of golf. So I tell people I'm usually around a four or five. So I'm, you know, I'd less comfortably. I'll say I'm a five handicap golfer. Yeah. And that's one of the cool things is that it compares that, that number to a, for me, I use it, I use it to, to test against a scratch player, but what it does is it allows a golfer to go in and actually compare themselves to other golfers within their own skill set, which is what Arcos allows, you know, the data set to do, which I think is really important for those, those golfers to create those expectations. Right. Because again, to your point, if you're a 15 handicap and you're like, well, I only hit a one or two greens today. And you know, the best players in the world hit 13. It's like, you know, that's really not a good starting point. Maybe we should try to aim for four next time.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So comparing yourself to, um, you know, a given skill level, um, and seeing how you benchmark against that is a, is a great way to, you know, look at your game and understand your game. And the old way of looking at stats, so putts per green regulation, putts per round, fairways hit, you know, those can be extremely misleading, uh, which is why looking at, at strokes gained is so much more informative to your game. And you can do things like compare yourself to, you know, for you, other five handicaps, or you compare you can compare yourself to other scratch players. You know, maybe you're uh, you know, a 15 that wants to be a 10. Well, you can compare yourself to a 10 handicap and see how they do in each area of the game where there's four areas in the game, off the tee, approach, around the green, and uh, putting. And you can see how you compare in all four of those categories. Uh, and then if you, you know, want to be a 10 or a 5 handicap one day, you can see how they play and see where you need to improve to try to get to the level that you're trying to get to.
0: Now, one of the old adages, and this is something that I always heard when I was a kid, some person would say it on the golf course or whatever, and it was drive for show and putt for dough. And that that really isn't the case anymore, is it, when it comes to creating an advantage of strokes gained and how that builds into your game off the tee, correct?
2: Um, yeah, I, I think we've, um, you know, Mark Brody deserves a ton of credit here. Mark Brody created strokes gained, uh, invented strokes gained, I don't know, maybe 15-ish years ago now or around there and they first started using it on the pga tour uh, i think in 2011 with putting and then they expanded it to other parts of the game Um, and um, it's extremely important to be a good ball striker if you want to be a good player it's extremely important but the caveat that i'll add to that is everybody's different Um, and yes if you want to be a better player ball striking is is at the top of the list, but that's not true for everybody. Um, and I'll give you an example. I can take ten ha- a 10 handicap player um, and we can put um, three 10 handicap players on the first tee and, and they all say hello and introduce themselves and and they're trying to get a game going and they all say, I'm a 10, I'm a 10, I'm a 10. All right, cool. No strokes today. <clears throat> and one of those 10 handicaps putts like the average 10 handicap. So they're just, they're putting is typical, typical 10 handicap. The other one is amongst the best putters in the top five percentile for 10 handicaps as far as putting goes, and they would putt like the typical scratch player. And the third person um, is in the bottom five, bottom five percentile, and they would putt like the typical 20 handicap. So you could have three players that are all 10 index players. One of them putts like a typical scratch. One of them putts like a typical 10. One of them putts like a typical 20. The difference in putting skill between a scratch putter and a 20 handicap putter is huge. Like, so as a player or as a coach, if I had a 10 handicap come in for a lesson and they showed me their numbers and they were putting like the typical 20 handicap, that player has tremendous opportunity to shave multiple strokes off their score by improving their putting. And so while ball striking is key and it's so important, one of the most important takeaways from all of this is your numbers could be different. You might not fit exactly into the profile and knowing where your weaknesses are allows you to focus on those weaknesses more appropriately, either through more effective practice, engaging the right instructor, making equipment changes, whatever the case may be, that's going to allow you to improve quicker.
0: I, that, that's a, that's a really interesting point. I, I am sure the listeners have heard me reference this call for a lot, but, uh, my dad is, is a terrible driver of the golf ball, atrocious, awful. I can't think of other words to describe it. He is a fantastic scramble player because he chips and putts like someone who is, and he's a, like, I would say a 15 to 18 handicap, but if you get him within 10 yard, 10, 15 feet of the fringe of a green and he starts chipping and putting, he is very good like shockingly good for his his skill set but it's the problem is getting there that is the most difficult element of it uh and that's an interesting point because there is a i think for especially for higher handicap golfers who do struggle with the short game it is such a quick pickup of of strokes because just like gaining a, a distance advantage with the driver takes a lot of skill like you need speed you need strength you need all of these things and i can think of you know, speaking to you know Roger Cleveland, who you know works for Cali Golf and, and talks about short game and wedges all the time, it's you know not everyone can hit a drive like John Rom. It's, right. it's just not going to happen. But yep. you can you can teach someone to hit a bunker shot like that. You can teach someone to putt like that. It's a skill that doesn't take a lot of strength, but it takes a lot. Like, again, it, t- it takes a lot of skill, but it doesn't necessarily take raw strength or speed. And I think that's an interesting point to take away from that is that. There, there is there are that's probably what would you say again I, I'm asking you about, like would you say that's one of the most low hanging fruits when it comes to
2: quickly improving score for some golfers? um you know it it's um it really is golfer dependent I would say overall higher handicap players are typically there's a lot of low hanging fruit for them just with solid contact uh, removing the 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 huge chunks or blading it or you know, hitting it off the hosel uh, or just missing it miles, you know, right or miles left. So those huge misses um, for higher handicap players is low-hanging fruit. When you stand over a ball and you're 160 yards away and you hit three inches behind it and the ball advances 30 yards, you're just giving strokes away. Even just remotely decent contact where it gets somewhere and not even on the green, just around the green, you're so much farther ahead of the game than if you lay the sod over it and it goes 30 yards. So for higher handicap players, ball striking, um, consistent ball striking where they're not having these huge misses and huge problems is, is typically pr- pretty low hanging fruit. Um, but I will say everybody's different, right? Everybody is different. And and there's not one perfect answer that applies to every golfer, which is why it's so important to know what your stats are. So you can apply, an improvement plan to you that suits you, um, but knowing nothing else about a player, really good ball striking is important. The one thing I'll say, you know, about your dad with short game, what's what's interesting? One of the one of the analysis that I did was I looked at you know given handicap levels, so I found all the five handicap players, ten handicap players, scratch players, etc., and I looked at them as a group. So I looked at all the scratch players together as a group and the fives together as a group. And I wanted to find the players that were the most consistent. So they had the lowest amount of variance in their scoring. Like, you know, five handicap didn't show up on Monday and shoot 96 and then show up on Tuesday and, and shoot 74. And then they're bouncing all over the place. I wanted to see the ones that had the tightest grouping. Um, and for the players that had the tightest grouping, um, they were the best short game players. Um, so there seems to be a relationship between consistency. So being able to, you know, save maybe not your best ball striking days. Um, you people are doing that with short game and they're reducing the amount of variance that they have in their overall scores. Um that makes perfect sense in my brain. Hopefully I explained it in a way that that also made sense.
0: Well I think I think recovery shots are so important, right? Because you can you can see someone hit a hit a squirrely drive Miss the green, but get it close, and then make the putt, and it's like, okay, well, they they still made a par, right? There's as a, you know, as people say, there's no pictures on a scorecard, so it's almost like the driver can give you an advantage, but the short game can really kind of like help you, right? Is is kind of what you're saying there? With yeah, the I mean
2: the, the the short game can, at least from what I saw, uh, and this held across skill levels, the short game can help you be more consistent with your scoring. It, it removes some of those really bad outlier rounds. Um, you're saving some more with the short game. But all in all, if you are a 12 handicap listening to this and you want to be a scratch player, I would you know, almost bet the farm that you're going to do that through ball striking. Um, being uh, more consistent um, with driver and with your irons, maybe getting longer off the tee, getting longer with your irons. That's going to be the biggest way you're going to move the needle. There's very few 10, 12 handicaps that are out there. That are hitting the ball like a you know like a low single digit player and they have a horrific short game and a, and a bad putter to offset <laughs> that. That's just you, you're you're not really going to find it. Now I can find eleven handicaps that hit it like a five. Um, I can find those people, but there's not really any eleven handicaps that are you know hitting their irons like a scratch player. That doesn't exist. So if you if you want to go from a twelve to a scratch, you're going to get a lot better at ball striking.
0: Now w- one of the other things that I think that that everyone loses shots equally is, is hazards. And that's a big one as well, right? Is, is hazard hazard avoidance, whether it be like water or out of bounds or things like that, because no matter what, like that's, it's an, it's an immediate shot added to your score. And I think from what I've seen, what I've tried to implement in my game is looking to maybe take those things on less often or taking slightly less aggressive options off of the tee or off approach shots, because I, again, using the method of like thinking strokes gains of like just hitting it, hitting it, hitting the green, picking a, a, picking a small target, but then having like a bigger kind of area to miss and thinking of your, um, your variability on the, on the shots coming in that can really help versus saying like, okay, well, you know, I just sliced out of bounds and now I have to go walk up there and instead of hitting two, I'm hitting three immediately. Right. Like that is regardless of skill set, that is one of the biggest killers of, of strokes, right. And, and adding it to your game.
2: Uh, 100%. Yeah. So avoiding penalty strokes is extremely important. And the better you are as a player, the less penalty strokes you're going to have. There's a a very strong relationship between how many penalty strokes you rack up and your index. If you're a 20 handicap, you have very likely a lot of penalty strokes. You're hitting it OB, you're hitting it into water hazards. You're finding lots of trouble. You're hitting it into the trees and having to come out sideways. Um, and so the, limiting those, limiting these big mistakes that are costing you strokes, either through penalties or through you know, getting into, deep into the woods and having to come out sideways or come out backwards, those are extremely challenging to overcome if you're doing them on a frequent basis. And so reducing that, removing that is extremely important. Like off the tee, I don't care at all how many fairways you hit. I just want you to keep it in play. I want you to hit it a reasonable distance. um, And so relatively decent contact. It doesn't have to be your best drive of the day. It doesn't need to be your longest drive you've ever hit. It just needs to be reasonable contact. um, And it needs to be in play. It needs to be somewhere where you can get a swing on it, that you're going to have a reasonable chance at getting it around the green. Um, And that doesn't have to be from the fairway. And so fairways hit extremely overrated. Uh, And I've put some some data out around this about how overrated it is. Um, And just keeping it in play, avoiding hazards is so, so important. And so you can do that by shifting target. uh, So you can start to move target away from trouble. Um, And sometimes the optimal target's in the rough. There's a course nearby uh, that I uh, play occasionally and it's a par five and it has water all the way down the right. And where the fairway ends, a really steep bank that's going to go into the water. So basically, the edge of the fairway, anything that gets right of that, even if it's trickling, it's gone. It's in the water. And the fairway there is about 36, 37 yards wide, roughly. There's not too many amateurs that wouldn't have a target that isn't on the extreme edge of the fairway, you know, 36, 37 yards away from trouble. And there's several amateurs that would have a target that's in the rough. And when I say target, I don't mean where you're aiming and you want the ball to drift back to the fairway. I mean, that's where you want the ball to finish. So most amateurs would have a target in that situation in the rough. And we wanna do that because we want to avoid penalty strokes. You know, having to drop or reload absolutely kills the scorecard. You can play from the rough as long as you have a swing. Uh, It's very challenging to, to play from the other side of the white stakes.
0: Yeah, that's very true. I, I always think of there's a there's a, a course that I play fairly regularly and it's about it's a they have a par four and it's a dog leg around water and I always use this I think of this example all the time when I think of like strokes gained and, and what it actually means and and what distance gains has mean to my to my game as well. And um so it's about I would say it's 250 yards to carry it on a straight line. It's this big dog leg around water. And you can go out and hit an iron, hit another iron in but I've gotten to the point now, unless the wind is like howling in my face, in which case I'm not going to get there. I basically just aim at the green and at the, and you know, you can miss right and you can miss left because it's not an island, but it's just there. Um, I just aim right in the middle of the green and, and kind of long and basically hit it as as far as, I, as as possible as I can to get it over. And then either that way I'm chipping or I, you know, if I get lucky, I'm either maybe in a bunker around the green or I'm on the green, you know, best case scenario the likelihood is the worst I'm going to make is a par.
2: Right.
0: And I've given myself the opportunity to, to get it closer uh, just because of that. And I always think of that. Cause like I, I play with friends and they'll, they might not play as often, but they're pretty good players. It's like, I'm going to hit an iron over here and then hit a wedge. And I'm like, you can hit a driver over there all day long. Like, why don't you just hit it? And I try and explain to them and it kind of goes over their head. But you know, to, and you, one of the things that I love and you, you put this out on Twitter a lot is driver versus three wood off the tee. I I tell people I live by the sword. I die by the sword. I hit driver everywhere. Um, For most amateur golfers, the driver really is the club to hit because of the dispersion as well as the extra potential distance that it offers, correct?
2: You know, you typically, I mean, a a good rule of thumb is you want to hit the ball as far as you can, as often as you can, making sure to take into account penalty strokes and and other hazards. That's kind of the rule of thumb for every shot situation that you're in Um, and you want to hit driver as often as you can. Typically Um, as a group uh, of amateur golfers, um, we're we are generally better off hitting driver um, than we are hitting three wood because driver is going to go farther typically for most of us. Uh, And we are not going to pick up a significant amount of accuracy with three-wood over driver, it's pretty marginal for most players. I will say it's not true. Like in in golf, there's no absolutes. These things are are not hard and fast rules for every single player out there. But for most players, their driver and their three-wood are going to have pretty similar dispersion. And when you look at players as a group, like 10 handicaps, um, the percentage of drives that they keep within 30 yards of the center of the fairway With driver, I think it's about 79%. And with three wood, it's 82%. It's only a 3% uptick. So, you know, that 60-yard window on a lot of golf courses is going to generally keep you in play for the most part. Um, And and so you're not going to see a huge uptick in accuracy with your three wood. What you will see is you will typically see a reduction in distance in the three wood. You're not going to hit it as far. So the only time three wood typically makes sense is if you're hitting it to remove or reduce the chances of reaching some kind of penalty hazard or reaching some kind of extremely challenging bunker. Um, if you can take those out of play, then you, sh- then you should, otherwise you should be hitting driver as often as you can.
0: It's, I think one of the things that the tour has done really well uh, and we start hearing it more when, when players are miked up, whether it be on a par three or on an approach shot as well as that plays into iron play as well, where if there's something over the green or in front of the green, you hear, often hear players ask for a carry number and play long of it. Or you know if there's something long, then they're going to play short of it because that club selection process throughout your entire round is what adds up to, hopefully at the end of it, lower scores versus, as we, as we talked about earlier, as soon as you can start eliminating hazards and penalty shots, that's where you know i've used the term a lot during the conversation but like that low-hanging fruit of you know an extra tick on the scorecard though you can as soon as you can start eliminating those you can start driving down your scores a lot quicker just by making better choices you don't have to make better golf swings you just have to understand where you where the golf ball is generally going to go based on the swing you're going to make oh i think you're did you mute yourself oh there that's we cool. go
2: that's okay. And yeah, no, that, that's that's a, g- a great point, and I think what's extremely important is you need to realize that you are very rarely going to hit the ball where you're trying to hit it. Um, even as an elite player, they are they are not hitting their targets as often as a lot of amateur golfers might think. So I want you to make intelligent decisions. Uh, pick a target. Commit to that target. Um, and then don't beat yourself up when it doesn't go exactly to where that target is, because it's rarely going to happen. All we're trying to do is take this very large area that you're going to hit a shot into and put that uh, in a safe space um, and, and and make sure that that safe space we're putting it in is as, as close to the green as we can possibly get it. You know, For example, if you're you know hitting something off the tee. So get the ball out there as far as you can uh, and try to keep it in play. That's the name of the game.
0: I, th- I think uh, you know we're talking right now. It's the week of the AT and T Pebble Beach Pro and I think for golfers right now who are you know if you're in the Northeast like I am, and uh, well, I mean, we'll call it the Great White North, but you know we're yeah. in that Northeast area, and you're stuck in it's winter time, and everywhere again we talk about what people generally see on television, but on you know Friday and Saturday of the of the event, you see amateur golfers, you see these these players who are anywhere from know 20 handicaps to five handicaps and everywhere in between and a little higher and a little lower. But you see, they show them on TV because that's part, you know, a lot of celebrities and all these like sports stars and all this stuff. And yeah, you'll see highlights of, of great shots maybe on social media, but the one thing you're going to see a lot of is missed shots. And I sure. think it, it's really important to you know contextualize what that means because most people think of oh you know you're watching the pros play these golf courses. Whereas in reality you know you, you watch these regular golf regular golfers who happen to be maybe ceos of companies or something like that it's like yeah they're short again or they're in the bunker again or they missed that shot in the bunker and it's like this is what you know re- regular golfers see all the time and i think it is kind of this People uh, people say you know some people kind of get annoyed by the tv coverage like i don't want to see that all the time but i think it's a good reminder that you know when you're with your friends and you're out there and, and you have your own expectations of what's on your game Everyone's gonna miss shots, right? It's just you—you you just don't see it all the time when you're watching on Sunday afternoon. And it's the two people out of 150 of the, some of the best players in the world coming down the stretch on heaters, right. hitting it within three feet out on a par three or something like that.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's—it's um, it's good to. I enjoy the at and uh, I enjoy watching the AMs out there and in and, and the pros side-by-side side with them and seeing some of the squirrely shots. Now, I'm not, I, if I was on site, I'm not sure that there are certain groups I might not follow around or you know, or, or stand slightly off to the right uh, on some of their tee shots. I, I might avoid some of those, but um, it's great to – it's a good reminder, as you said, to, to, to drive home that we're not all going to hit great shots. We're not all tour players. Um, and, and so having proper expectations is, is only going to help your game.
0: It's like anyone who buys a house 200 to 250 yards to the right side of a fairway on a golf course probably isn't much of a golfer either that or they, they put up really high fences.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's exactly right. I love that. So,
0: uh, what I want to finish on here is, is, you know, talking to Arcos and talking about it. Like I'm, I'm a fan of it. I'm a user of it. I would say that you know, when I first uh, heard of the system and saw the system back in the day when it was originally introduced in the in the end of a Cobra driver when I worked retail many many years ago, uh, I thought to myself, well, it's going to, you know, this is something that's going to slow down rounds of golf, and it's not. I, I just don't see it working for it. Completely converted. Like you could not have converted me quicker to understanding how much this can help when you realize the data that it offers. So what, what are the things that you're most excited about that golfers can benefit from this? And we see it with a lot of OEMs. They're using this system now uh, right. to gain insights into, into um, statistics on golfers when it comes to building sets of golf clubs and things like that. But from your side of it, what to, what to you is, is the most uh, exciting part of the system that you think moving forward, it, it just continues to get better and get better and is going to help golfers better understand their games?
2: Yeah, I think the uh, the best part of of our, well, there's a, a many many good parts to Arcos, and I was an Arcos user be- before I became involved with with them, and um, getting strokes gain data at for every part of the game and being able to apply that in a way that is going to help you focus your practice plan or engage your coach, your fitter, um, the person in your camp that's going to help you get better um, using data. Uh, is going to help you get better faster. And that's that's the key for me, is understanding how you're truly performing, finding your weaknesses and making them better is going to help you to improve faster. And you're going to be able to quantify that improvement along the way. You're going to be able to see exactly how you're doing, what changes you make, how it's impacting your game, how it's impacting what you do. It's extremely easy to use. You either use screw-in sensors that screw into the end of your club uh, you, there's an app that you have on your phone. You either put your phone in your pocket, or if you don't like to play with your phone in your pocket, there's a very small clip you put on your belt. It's extremely, su- extremely small. And you use that. It collects all of your data. You go in afterwards, you validate a few things, and now you're going to have really good data about your game. Um, and we talked a lot about a lot of generalizations today about what certain handicap players should be thinking about or should be doing. And the benefit of having something like Arcos is it gives you all of that data and, and we can move away from a generalization and we can get you towards something specific for you to help you get better because now we know where your weakness is. So if you are serious about getting better um, and you are out there collecting some of the old school stats like fairways hit or you know putts per round, which most players do, and you know, if you look at player scorecards that are tracking stats on their own. They, they track how many putts per round they had, how many fairways they hit, how many greens they hit. Uh, um, two out of those three are not very useful uh, and can be misleading. The only one there that, that has some decent value is greens and regulation. Um, that, that's the old school stat that um, that is good. Um, and if you want to get better at golf, you're going to hit more greens. And the better you are, the more greens you're typically going to hit. Um, but the rest of those things can be very misleading and not useful, which is why having strokes gained is extremely important. So I'm a huge advocate of knowing this information to help you get better. And the cool part is I'm a, I'm a math nerd. I'm a numbers nerd. And I can go deep in the data and stay there. And, and that's you know my happy place.
0: So, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Lou. It was quite insightful to to talk to him. And remember, you can follow us along on all our social channels, fully equipped on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Gene for uh, for dealing with dealing with me.